0: It's Jim Paff, and welcome back to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are the cruelest of all people because they're subjective and selfish in the way that they address society. Kind people have the interests of others in mind, but they speak truth into society. Follow us on iTunes, give us a five star rating, and also uh, give us your review of the podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps. Now let's get to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Against Nice podcast. Uh, We're today going to talk with my friend Rachel Bovard. She's uh, an expert on uh, many policy issues uh, in in Washington, D.C. She's been around Capitol Hill for about 10 years, uh, working for various congressmen. We'll talk about that on the podcast and and uh, has a real depth of understanding of what goes on in D.C. But today, we're going to talk about one area of expertise that she has, and that relates to how social media giants are dealing with conservatives and other issues that have really uh, been in the forefront of uh, what's being discussed in Washington right now. There's something called section 230 it was in the uh, communications decency act it was placed in there in the 1990s and it gave platforms like google and facebook and other social media sites twitter and others the ability to not be subject to legal action for the content that people on their sites would voluntarily put up so you know if you make a post uh, and you say something that is objectionable to someone enough that they'd want to file suit against uh, these social media uh, companies for allowing it to be placed on there. They wouldn't be subject to that. It allows them to put to allow content to be put up without um, any negative effect legally to them in, in civil or criminal action. Well, what's happening is that these uh, these organizations are have turned this on its head. And now there is a regular attempt, particularly during the COVID-19 crisis, where they are cutting content out. If you put something up, and I've seen this happen to me related to posts that I've put up uh, related to hydroxychloroquine and whether that's an effective treatment for COVID-19. Um, these things are actually getting cut off. I've had at least three notices recently where I've put something up just for informational purposes and adding to the debate and they've been taken down because the World Health Organization, according to Facebook in this particular instance, says that any discussion of hydroxychloroquine in a positive way, the World Health Organization says, well, no, there's nothing that proves that it's an effective treatment at all. So it just gets taken down. You, if you go to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Jim Paff, you'll see that I have posted some of this stuff up and uh, where, where they've cut me off the notification that they've given me. This is very concerning because we're getting into the 2016 elections and whatever Donald Trump and his campaign are putting up or other conservatives, uh, in fact, in recent hearings, which took place on the day I recorded this interview with uh, Rachel Bovard, Uh, Jim Jordan and some other congressmen pointed out how they had been shadow banned by these social media companies when they're putting various political things up, which, you know, any American should be able to just state their opinion. But when you've got congressmen that are elected officials by hundreds of thousands of people in their districts and they're getting their accounts shut down, becomes a real problem. It's serious business and there are real consequences for politics. You know, uh, my friend Peter Schweitzer, whom I've interviewed on this program before, he uh, got together with a gentleman named Robert Epstein, who is a psychologist, a PhD psychologist who has, and he's a Democrat too, he was a Hillary Clinton supporter by his own admission and he's in very concerned about this because he has actual evidence that the social media companies are using psychological analysis as a way to really push people towards certain opinions about political candidates and about political races he's very concerned as a democrat even and as a liberal again he he says he's this way at all he's concerned that these companies and what they're doing right now could also lead to other nefarious things. These social media companies, Google and Facebook and Twitter, and even uh, to a certain degree, Amazon, uh, when it comes to commercial uh, situations, that they are using their platforms to direct the discussion in society. And he's very concerned how that could be used for any purpose by anyone of any political opinion, who might have other platforms as well, who could control the debate in this society? There, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter control a large portion of our cultural and political debate because they are the three platforms that almost everyone goes to. And of course, when you add to this, uh, TikTok is becoming a massive platform that is being controlled by the Chinese government. How do we protect ourselves? from these companies uh, really uh, beyond what the federal government can do controlling what's happening. Robert Epstein has detailed research where he's looked at these platforms to see how they are controlling what's taking place. And Peter Schweitzer got together with him uh, to put together a video presentation called The Creepy Line. And they show in in clear terms how these companies are actually controlling the political and cultural debate. It's very interesting. You should go to thecreepyline.com and check out their video as well. Uh, Peter invited me to the premiere of this when I was still working in Washington, D.C., and it's really scary what's taking place. Well, last week, there was a Capitol Hill uh, committee, the Judiciary Committee, met brought all these major, they had Tim Cook of Apple, they had Jeff Bezos of Amazon, they had Mark Zuckerberg of, uh, of Facebook, and Sundar Pichai of Google, and they questioned them on the things that they were doing, and some really scary and interesting things even came out of those hearings, and some wrangling, wrangling between uh, Republicans and Democrats on what really was important. But, um, that's an interesting and critical uh, discussion that took place there. Just before those hearings came out, Rachel Bovard sat down with me. She's, she uh, discussed uh, section 230 and the various things that these uh, companies are doing. We talked about this and there's some very concerning things that she brings up. That's what's in this podcast today. You want to listen to the whole thing. It's not really long. And, uh, Find out what's going on. We're going to continue to track this moving forward and have more discussions in the future because more and more revelations are coming out, especially as we go into the November elections here in 2020. This is really concerning what could happen. Donald Trump has already been uh, had some of his uh, Facebook po- or Twitter posts shut down by Twitter. Uh, we don't know what they're doing on Facebook. And of course, Google is controlling the various uh, search results that are coming out, and it really does favor Democrats in many ways. So this is real concerning. It's an important topic of discussion. Rachel Vovard is an expert in this area and has been tracking it closely. You're going to really appreciate and, and, and be glad that you listened to this podcast. It's really serious stuff. We're going to go to that podcast now, and uh, uh, again, I want to encourage you, go to politicsisntnice.com, And take time to see what we've got on that website. There's one specific place I want you to go on the website, politicsisntnice.com forward slash survey. I want to ask you to take two minutes to fill out our survey. Let us know what you've been listening to on the podcast what's important to you, and what you'd like to see. That's very helpful for us as we try to get more information. And, of course, when you go to politicsisntnice.com forward slash survey, you're also going to see a link at the top right to be able to join our email list, and we hope that you'll do that as well. So let's go to this uh, podcast with Rachel Bovard. Well, everyone, welcome to the Against Nice podcast today. I'm here with Rachel Bovard. She uh, works – well, let me just give you her uh, bio. She's uh, more than a decade. Just been working in Washington, D.C. on various policies. She worked for Senator Rand Paul as his uh, legislative director. We're big fans of Rand here since, uh, as Rachel knows, I worked for Thomas Massey. Uh, Good friends there. She was the uh, policy director for the Senate Steering Committee under both Pat Toomey and Mike Lee. A couple other heroes, although Pat sometimes gets a little. Off the the edge, but he's a good guy. We like him a lot. Senior legislative assistant in the House to Donald Manzullo and Ted Poe, and she was named National Journal's one of uh, most influential women in Washington under the 35. Both of us having been in D.C., we love those lists, don't we? You made it. I never did. You did, so I'm very. Well, not under proud
1: of you 35 that. anymore. So then, yeah, I'm
0: the, <laughs> fired. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I, we're not going to admit to that. Uh, also, she's a fellow with defense policies and a senior advisor for uh, the Internet Accountability Project. We like Defense policies. Ed King, who runs that group, is a good friend of mine. I'm glad you get to work with him because a lot of great stuff happening there for us folks that question a little bit what's going on with (laughs) with, uh, uh, going to war a lot. But what we're going to talk about today, folks, is a serious, serious issue uh, because it affects every one of us. And it's really stirring up right now. We're talking about the tech companies and uh, a lot of what's happening related to um, uh, Section 230 of uh, the uh, uh, Decency Act and uh, the ways that tech companies are using this to uh, really censor speech, basically. We think mostly conservative speech. There, There are other areas. Rachel may know something about that. But this is a, a momentous day to do this because all the tech companies are going to be in D.C. today uh, talking about uh, antitrust issues related to this, and this whole speech issue really falls into that really closely. But anyway, I want to thank you, Rachel, for uh, coming on with me today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it'll be fun. And there's, there's a lot of information, I think, ways that people don't know what's really going on here they don't know how it affects them you know we uh, we work in the political realm and we're constantly trying to uh, uh, you know get keep keep our message out there for the people and the issues that we care about but this is i mean we we're in a place right now where donald trump's getting blocked by twitter various folks are are wondering why their messages don't get out i know that i do things on facebook and stuff and I'm getting blocked quite a bit. This is a serious issue. What's going on here? How can people really understand what's at stake? Because I think your average citizen thinks it's nothing's at stake for them right now. They're just out there sharing their friends' photos and stuff. What's going on?
1: So the reason I think that, you know, people should start waking up and paying attention is not necessarily that these companies are making sort of You know, decisions about what content they're gonna censor and not, because that wouldn't matter in most cases, right? They're private companies, they can generally do what they want. But the reason it does matter is because these companies are so dominant that they control information. In Google's case, they control information for 92% of the world. 92% of the world uses Google. And so when Google makes a decision about how to filter information, or as they recently did, how, you know, to suppress conservative websites to cons- suppress conservative writers in their search results, that has a huge impact on independent thought and free speech in America, right? Because as conservatives, we our, our answer is, well, if we don't like bad speech, the answer is not to censor it, it's to have more speech. And so we go right. and we write and we speak and we do these things. But if the major platform for 92% of the world is not going to show our efforts, then that's is- a huge huge ramification for independent thought behavior and liberalism in america and by liberalism i mean you know the classical definition of debate and diversity of views
0: yeah this is a huge issue right now in particular because you've got all these wild things taking place culturally right now we've got the black lives matter protests in reaction to that how antifa is involved with that as well uh people are wondering you know what's where's our country going from here and to be candid, if we don't have an, an open debate about that, on, on any side of it, with no one being, you know, who, who cares what someone's opinion is, that the opinions get out there, that they get countered, that they get discussed. This, this is really key to the continuation of our freedoms in this country, I think.
1: It really is. And I think, again, it goes back to this idea that, like, if you had a, a diversity of platforms, right, if, you, if Google wasn't so dominant, you know, you could go somewhere else and, and say these things, but you can't right now. Sure, you can use another search engine, but when 92% of the world is still using Google, that changes how people think. Uh, an example of this is a professor of mine at Grove City College who did my undergraduate there. Uh, he has taught a class on cultural Marxism for, for years. Right? I took it as an undergraduate 14 years ago. Uh, it's always just about the concept of cultural Marxism. Never had a problem, but now Google has suddenly defined Called Marxism as a white supremacist, racist, bigoted way of looking at the world, and because of that, he's now getting protested on campus. You know, because Google has just shifted a definition, and Google has that power, right? They have the power to actually change what words mean, and there are real consequences to that, you know, for independent thought, in America. So I do. This is something that conservatives need to pay attention to, because it's not just a private company anymore. Th- these. Google in particular, um, Facebook as well, has, has tremendous power over the world and what we say, how we think. And that's something we should all be concerned about.
0: Give, give some examples of that. I mean, I, I think some people may not really be able to grasp. Yeah, they can hear their, that Google truly does have 92% of all search, but they're, and there are alternatives and stuff. How, how is this really happening? Kind of put some meat to the bones to that, because I think it shocks a lot of people when they hear that.
1: Yeah, so people think of Google as merely just a search platform, and it's not, right? It's a hugely dominant platform. Google owns YouTube, which is the second biggest search engine in the world. You may not know that, but it is. <laughs> so Google yeah. owns that as well. And then they have 70% of the browser market on Chrome. Um, but most of where they make their money is their targeted ads. And so they provide ad tech for a host of websites across the Internet. Um, 80% of the top websites on the Internet have Google ad tech. But a lot of um, you know, conservative news outlets use Google Ads. And, and you saw this most frequently with the website The Federalist, um, the conservative site that many of us read gets millions of views a day. Uh, Google responded to a threat from NBC News, and they said, you know what? The Federalist is violating our terms of service in its comment section. So we're gonna deplatform The Federalist from our Google Ad revenue. And that's a huge hit for a website, right? You know, the Federalist has a mixed business model, but they get a lot of revenue from Google ads. And Google has the power to effectively, you know, wipe the Federalist off the map by chain, by you know, by forcing its, you know, or removing its revenue model. And so oh. that's the economic power that Google has.
0: Well, and, and I, I just uh, was last night listening to uh, uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, Breitbart's editors were on there yeah. claiming the same thing. You know, Breitbart came onto the scene really big. I mean, they came out and uh, strongly uh, dominated a lot of what was being discussed, certainly as far back as uh, 2000, uh, even as far back as 2014. And in the wave up to 2016 and after, Breitbart helped set the discussion as well. This is before Federalist even came out. They helped set the discussion. And it was a hugely uh, important uh, website to to get information to understand what conservative thought was. Now you can't even find them in Google rankings. They're noticing this more and more. Um, th- this, what it, I think is being set up here is, and it's not always the CEOs, although they're behind it in many ways. I think the bigger issue for these tech companies is they have got radicalized employees who are determined, like in Mark Zuckerberg's case. I think Mark Zuckerberg's trying to navigate this in a way. I I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to call him an angel or anything, but he is trying to navigate it. And he's almost got revolt in his employees for any step he takes, even just to give the pretense, if not something seriously useful, to help uh, conservatives know that he doesn't want to shut them out. I, I, I don't know how effective that's been, but he is making that Effort and his employees are revolting. I mean, this this is really uh, one of the. It, it's it's far beyond a, a company issue. This has gotten into an activist company issue, which I mean really has some touch points with uh, George Orwell's 1984 in terms of what the intent is with some of these employees. Am I am I overstating that in any way?
1: No, I think it's the right way to look at it because I I agree like I don't think the heads of these companies have some sort of like big conspiracy to like remove conservatives I, I think it really is that sort of middle management that is incredibly activist and that's why I think you see such a divergence between what the company says their policy is and what actually happens right because they're, they're they're like we don't yeah. have policies against conservative speech we don't censor they say right. these like really carefully crafted blogs and whatever, but then they do the opposite. And yeah. so I think that's what you're getting at is that like the implementers themselves, you know, like if you remember um, a guy named Joel Roth, who's the head of content moderation at Twitter, his tweets were uncovered I think by the New York Post a couple of months ago, actively trashing Trump, hating on Trump supporters. This is the guy in charge of content moderation at Twitter, right, like <laughs> you have to yeah. ask yourself like, how is he treating viewpoints he disagrees with because he clearly vehemently despises people who disagree with him.
0: Yeah, he he really does. And uh, that, that was shocking. That revelation was incredibly shocking to, to your average person. I, th- I, I, I think people like you and I who are having to deal with this or talking about it or seeing it play out in politics, where where I think, by the way, where I think the biggest issue is, we're dealing with this all the time. And We're having our friends, I know, in the political community are constantly bringing up issues. I know that I, I mean, I regularly connect with folks I know at Facebook when I see little things. Now, they respond to me, but but they're not responding to the average person. There's a real activism internally there that I think is intent upon not just Uh, uh, directing the debate in a way that they think will be most politically beneficial, even beyond that, and this is where it goes beyond politics. They're trying to make cultural shifts in this country, trying to impose them and force them in ways that go way beyond the political debate we're having.
1: That I think is the real sort of significant impact of these companies, right? Like they are actually shifting, the culture they did initially and it was a disruption i think that was useful right we 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 ha- we suddenly had avenues to go out and have our voices heard that were beyond the mainstream media right. you know we could use these these companies to get our voices out there and heard in ways that were untraditional but now these companies have become the entrenched incumbents and yeah. they you know they are now saying well you can say this but you can't say this and they are really limiting to a great extent a lot of the f- Freedoms that I think we appreciated about these platforms in the beginning. And it doesn't just affect our politics, to your point. It affects our behavior, it affects our culture. And so I do think that conservatives, um, that's a reason we should pay attention, right? Because 99% of the time, private companies just going about their business is what we love about this country. But when it actually starts to upend the democratic way of life that we cherish, when it starts to uh, you know, have issues with the integrity of elections or behavior, or independent thought, then that is something we say, okay, wait, maybe we need to wake up and pay attention and have a say here.
0: So this is something I know that you and I and others, friends of ours, have been grappling with for some time. Uh, I kind of fall on this more uh, libertarian end of it to say, "Let's, let's, come on, let's just have freedom we can uh, look for competition in this area. If, if, we, if we set a battle line here, it just might cause even worse problems as government gets its tentacles involved. So I want to I hit on this a little bit because I, I think it's really critical. But to set that up, so let's talk about what really is at the heart of this issue, and it's Section 230 of the Decency Act. It was passed, I think it was 96, wasn't it, Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and then Congressman, now Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon was involved with this. 26 little words, if you, if you ever did search on this, and here are the words, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Ah, sounds pretty innocuous. Uh, you know, just let the, let the platforms uh, not be liable if someone makes a mistake, a benign or malignant mistake when they're posting stuff on their platform. Don't hold them accountable to it, and it seems to just leave them to a bit of the self-policing. I mean, if you go deeper into the Act, things like pornography and stuff like that, there, there are real restrictions. But the stated pers- uh, restrictions are kind of on the fringe, worst aspects of uh, free speech on those platforms. So, seems. Proper to me, what's the problem?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it was, uh, you know, the past in the right way, in the sense that it's what allowed these companies to grow. And they basically, you know, the internet back in the day, right, was was basically a bulletin board, right? It was just chat rooms and people putting stuff up. Um, It didn't have this advanced technology that we have today, and they needed the ability to say, "You can't sue me for some something someone posts on my site," right? And so that was effectively what it was. But the problem is that it's become, well, and again, it was also designed to help them take down smutty content, right? right. And not get sued for it. Like it was the goal If you, Chris Cox, one of the authors of the statute said, look, we wanted to clean up the internet, right? We wanted to allow them to take down pornographic content without being sued by the creator of the content. Right, right. Which is great. We all want that. But the problem is that it's been, it is one of the most judicially manipulated statutes like in, I mean, of all of them, right? It's been the courts have really taken uh, the immunity that Congress gave these platforms and contorted it into what was sort of a porous immunity with a pretty specific directive. It has now become this like blanket liability, a bulletproof liability to the point where, you know, sex trafficking flourishes online because these companies don't actually have to address it. A lot of them do. A lot of them want to. Right? I, I but think the
0: the biggest, the biggest problem there. That a lot of people may be aware of or may not is Craigslist,
1: right? Or Backpage. That was the big one, right? Right. right. And you know, and because the issue is like the the platforms are are immune, so they don't have to address it, right? right? Like there's no stick, so it's like, well, if they're feeling like good citizens today, they can address it, but there's no really compulsive factor, um, right. you know. But the other side of it is that you know it gives them a tremendous amount of of running room to to kind of act with discretion towards you know, all these different content creators without any recourse, right? If I get banned from Twitter, I have no ability to to sue Twitter, right? They have all my, or YouTube is a really good example of this, right? You have people who create content on YouTube. Alex Jones is a good example. You know, however you feel about Alex Jones, he brought billions in ad revenue to YouTube and then they banned him and there was no recourse, right? He had made them so much money, but then he didn't have any ability to say, well, like you just took all my content. Like, do you owe me anything?
0: What, so what's like, interest? and by the way i mean yeah he did bring billions but yeah. they got billions upon tens of billions more of revenue so i mean that's like a drop in the bucket for these people
1: no it totally is We're it just is and with impunity because it doesn't matter yeah. to them. so big so you know i think well more to the point they're so rich but yeah. you know i think it it gets to this idea that you know the goal, when Congress is looking at revisiting Section 230, I think they have two goals. I think one, they want to make these big tech companies accountable, more accountable to their users, but also to like a lot of the criminal activity that's flourishing online. There was a hearing yesterday in the Senate Commerce Committee looking at a 230 bill that would make them make the platforms more liable to um, illegal content or illicit content, right? So that was very narrowly focused. But I think the second goal is you know really to just revisit a statute that potentially needs to be updated. It's been 24 years. The shape and, and nature of the internet has changed. You know, Conservatives do this all the time. We look at laws and say, do they still apply or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the answer might be that they're fine. They don't need updates. But I think it's inherently okay to review and look at the statute to see if it needs to be uh, modified.
0: Well this this really gets into a discussion that is very touchy in the conservative community. <laughs> you know if you take the conservative community to be that more center right to more uh, if I assume if actually it's not linear but I'll I'll stay with the analogy now from the center right out to the libertarian civil libertarian right that are really con- some of whom are really concerned that when you get messing around with this that you're you're going to start government down a path uh where where nineteen eighty four can be real by the way uh, and uh, as you know, I worked for Thomas Massey and I love he developed a hashtag that said uh make orwell fiction again well the the problem is Orwellian thinking really is taking more and more control of our political debate right now and 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 I think to a certain degree for some of these people that work in these tech companies in in even in the uh corporate Arena where people have influence over speech. So, how do we stop from this turning into something that is going to uh, begin to dominate, allow government to dominate? what we're talking about on a daily basis. And this is not something that's some surreal fantasy. This is happening in China right now, for example. We'll get into China here in just a little bit, but this is happening in China right now. How do we keep that from happening here in the United States when, by the way, in some small ways it sort of is?
1: Yeah, no, and I think that's why a good, like healthy debate on the right is important because I think we on the conservative right are much better positioned to deal with this question than Democrats. Because to your point, Democrats would love to have government control of speech. And I think, you know, on the right, you know, we have that sort of necessary skepticism of exactly what you said, which is what are the unintended consequences? Like, how can this go wrong? Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think it's an important debate to have. I would say this, you know, Section 230 might not be the perfect remedy. It's only one of many areas where I think you can deal with this problem. But part of I think the, the heart of the problem that we have is that we really don't have any alternatives, right? Like we can go use Parler, right? And we should, and, yeah. and instead of Twitter, but at the end of the day, like all of the speech with reporters and newsmakers is still happening on Twitter. Same with Google. Like you could go use DuckDuckGo, but at the end of the day, like if 92% of the world is still using Google, it doesn't matter what DuckDuckGo is doing because everybody's, you know, getting their group think from, from Google. Right. And so, what I think is interesting about the hearing today is it's going to address sort of the anti-competitive behavior that we have in this space and, and ask whether or not any laws have been broken and if they have been, if we need to apply antitrust to these companies because, and I don't necessarily mean break them up, like that's an extreme application of antitrust. Um, antitrust is more of a scalpel in a number of ways um, and that's law enforcement, right? And where I come down in it is that I actually think a lot of these speech concerns that we have, are downstream from antitrust in the sense that we could compete them away, right? If a free market existed where, you know, you could actually have a competition on the merits on these questions, I think we would actually have a lot more diversity of platforms and options in the marketplace. And so where I come down to it is I do think we need, we should look into whether or not the anti-competitive behavior of these platforms has violated our laws.
0: We want to take a moment here right in the middle of the podcast, just to tell you how incredibly important it is that you go to nice.com as you get more information about the important things we're talking about today and uh, get other insights into different information and join our email list. There's a button right at the top right-hand portion of the web page where you can join our email list. Also, go to facebook.com forward slash against nice. Twitter handle is against nice. You can follow us on Instagram at Against Nice as well, and on Parlor at Against Nice. Uh, All of our social media is available to you, and of course, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps so that you can get the podcast immediately when it comes out. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about this broadcast and the others that we have there. Again, www.politicsisntnice.com. Do you want to get on the path to a healthy lifestyle? Go to FitNutritionDepot.com. Fit Nutrition Depot has a full range of products to help you pursue your health goals. If you need more energy or you want to lose weight, Fit Nutrition Depot has the products to help you pursue a better, healthy lifestyle. Beat that drop in afternoon energy. Stay alert without that sudden slump at the end of the day with Liftoff. Are you trying to lose weight? Try one of our quick start programs. They can help support your goal of healthy weight management and nutrition. And our herbal aloe products can help soothe your stomach and support intestinal health. Go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com. Results vary. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. If you'd like to find out more, go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com. Go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com now. I want to take a quick break right here so we can get to some of our sponsors.
1: People try to yeah. say, "Oh, well, you want to update anti- antitrust?" No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, if yeah. laws on the books have been broken, we should apply them.
0: Well, I think we we look at uh, some of these antitrust laws, which began their development in the Teddy Roosevelt administration. Some discussion before that, but really the heart of it in the Teddy Roosevelt situation. I mean, you've you've been you've been around policy for long enough in Washington D.C to know some abuses that can happen with that. I, I was looking at an article uh, that, I think it's in one that you wrote. Yeah, so uh, y- you wrote an article in The Federalist, uh, Congress Must Get Serious About tech Threats to Individual Rights. One of the things that you talk about, which I think relates to this, is this whole market power that they have and how they do it. So one, one quote in your article, and you can feed off this, is Apple Facebook, Google, and Amazon were, quote, wielding, the, uh, and this was, uh, uh, I, I can't, I don't know who's quoting, you can get into it. But anyway, wielding their massive footprints as weapons, allegedly copying smaller competitors' features or tweaking their algorithms in ways that put new companies at a costly disadvantage. Um, you uh, mention Amazon is uh, facing allegations that they met with startups about investing only to swipe their company's ideas for their own product lines. that there's so much gray area in in this sort of thing. But uh give some specifics. How is this happening? Cuz this this actually I mean it's a good point as it relates to what you just said because uh, so much of the, I would I don't want to see 230 changed. I mean I might want to have them add and you can't discriminate on uh based on uh viewpoint. You know, you can't do viewpoint discrimination. Maybe if we just added that. To me, that's probably enough because it keeps the heart of 230 in place, which I think has been relatively productive. But this yeah. is maybe the really the behavior that uh, causes tech companies so much problem. Amazon is a huge example of this because you've got small business owners all over the country working very hard to take advantage of the power of Amazon's platform and then so many, in so many ways getting shut out. Now that Amazon is beginning to set up its own lines of products, clothing and groceries and different things, they're doing actually Amazon branded things. Now they're competing against their base customers there. So there's a lot of this going on. What what are some specifics here that, that we really need to be worried about? Because I think a lot of people don't understand the degree. We, we talk about, I mean, there have been uh, for years coders that work for these organizations they're taking code over to the next organization they work for and then they have these arguments about it uh, that that may not even be the worst part of it there's there's something more to it so how are they how are these companies leveraging their power give some specific examples if you can
1: yeah so it's interesting as conservatives i think we get sort of wrapped around the axle of conservative bias but it really is like only one concern with tech. And I think as the party of small business and small entrepreneurs, we really need to be paying attention to this other side of it, which is that we want businesses to be able to compete on the merits. And is that still happening? And I think um, the quote that you read was actually a quote from a um, a field hearing that the Antitrust Subcommittee had, where they brought in a number of small businesses that were dealing with Google, dealing with Apple and Amazon. And it was interesting in the Washington Post coverage of the field hearing. Uh, Tony Rahm, the the reporter, said congressmen appeared stunned as they heard these stories, you know, of, you know, even ranging from the speaker, um, the speaker company, Sonos. Yeah. Patrick Spence, I think I quote him in that article. You know, he basically was like, look, Google stole our IP. Like we tried to work with Google and they just ended up stealing our IP and putting it in their Alexa.
0: In fact, what he actually said, he says uh, that they leverage your dominance in one market to conquer and destroy adjacent markets, especially markets that may one day pose a threat to their dominance. I mean, so they lay in wait even as well. They're not actually active right now.
1: Yeah. And you, and you see it across the board, you know, they, Amazon and Google, I think in particular, and Apple with its app store has, has a lot of downstream effects on small, on small app creators, but Google and Amazon, I think are going to take a lot of questions on this today, because again, you know, they, Google almost has a strategy and Patrick Spence has, has spoken openly about this. He said, look, I have to sue Google now because I think my rights have been violated. I can't afford to do 10 years of litigation on this point. Google can and in many ways you know they they take that approach on a lot of small competitors um and amazon is being accused of a very similar thing not just with swiping you know the the ideas of the innovators that come meet with them for investment but they've also been accused of so they have amazon product lines um undercutting the prices using third-party seller data to undercut the prices you know for their product line because they see the board right they know you know what the competing products are being sold on because it's their platform and right. so they can simply say, Oh, that guy's charging $6.99. I'm gonna charge $599. You know, that's inherently anti-competitive. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's it's a it's a knife in the heart to these small business owners trying to make a living.
0: Well, by the way, that brings up for Google at least one antitrust issue related to breakup of a company that, that's really important because Google bought DoubleClick some years back, which yeah. is was a plat, which is a platform that uh helps advertisers figure out where to place ads it tracks the performance of ads uh, this was for many years DoubleClick was a huge organization they were separate from google they had their own information they were helping advertisers figure out how to get into google's platforms and other places and now they own it so they've got both sides of the issue and DoubleClick has its tentacles out way beyond anything that google does on, on individual websites where ads are placed and, and various other platforms, they really control the whole deal right now after buying this. And that was a big issue. I remember when they wanted to buy DoubleClick. That was an antitrust issue that came up that people considered. Um, and, and I want to talk about Google Click in a minute, but I want to make this statement. You know, it is interesting. You talk about these, these congressmen and senators, you know, with big eyes. I, I remember uh, I worked for Tim Hills Camp some years back as his chief of staff and he comes over to me one day and he says, Hey, you know what I just found out? He said, the senators, they were just having their retreat. You know how these, the, the caucuses do that at the beginning of the year, he says, they, they chartered a bus. And they went from the Senate and took it over to the Heritage Foundation, which for people that don't know, uh, the Heritage Foundation isn't even a mile away from the Senate downtown in D.C. Because it's all old people that have no clue what's going on. I mean, one of the good things, you talk about there aren't many Democrats there. Ron Wyden is one of these guys, I think, that's very faithful in this area. For all the disagreements I have with him, he gets it on civil liberties in in a way that, is restrained from the Democrat perspective and and as against mine. But uh, there are a few of these guys that that really get tech. Ron Wyden's one of them. There are very few in the Senate, some in the House. But most of these people we're electing, they have no freaking clue what's going on with all this. They don't know how to analyze it. They have no perspective. They're just – you could barely – I mean, most of these uh, guys and gals in Congress – their Twitter accounts are being updated by their staff. They're in their 20s and 30s, not by themselves. That's a, that's a huge hurdle we have in this, isn't it?
1: No, it is. And I think it was like best captured when um, Mark Zuckerberg came before the Senate and Orrin Hatch was still in the Senate. And I, you know he's like, how do you make money? And Zuckerberg was like, "Well, we run ads." <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> he's, he's a disconnect in knowledge. Oh. I think that's. I think that's right. Although you're starting to see, I think the younger senators, there are a few of them. I think that's why Josh Hawley's been so aggressive. Yeah. On tech. And and people disagree with him on how he's doing it, and I think that's fair and valid. But he gets, I think, the the technical side of it a lot more uh more than most. I'll just say yeah that.
0: <laughs> yeah even Rand Paul, huh? He's four. Yeah, he's 40, yeah. Even Rand Paul, Mike Lee, kind of get it. And um, I I know in Rand's case, his staff is doing it, but he really understands it. His dad, actually, uh, Ron Paul, for being in his, I think he's in his late 80s now, you know, he kind of gets it too. He's really working it. Um, I think it it is rare, though. I, I think your average American doesn't even understand much about the platforms that they're working on. So when you've got a combination of ignorance in the populace, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but, you know, where they just don't know and and almost a neglectful ignorance in Congress. Yeah. I don't care how old they are. They should be digging into this and learning it because everything, they, they're policymakers and everything that's happening in this country is happening on those platforms. doesn't happen with ABC, CBS, and NBC like it did in right. the 70s and 80s. This is where all the debate's happening. It's not even Fox News and CNN. I mean, they're they're part of this, but where their messages get out are on these platforms more than on the broadcasts that they're doing. Yeah. And, and th- so this is the whole game for the political debate, for everything that's happening in culture. We don't even communicate one-on-one in culture much anymore. I mean, my wife and – it's kind of funny because my wife and I, at night, and it it bugs me sometimes. I'm a techie – I'm 55 years old, but I'm a techie geek. I mean, I was programming computers in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, because I I was so into this, and no one was exposed to it at that time. But we'll get into bed at night sometimes, and we're both kind of looking at our phones – I mean we're we're in our late 50s and and we're doing that but we we're all engaged in that way and we're not understanding what the impact and significance of our cultural debate is because it plays out on these platforms it, it hardly plays out in the personal space anymore it doesn't matter how much zoom is, has proliferated during covid-19
1: Yeah and I think that that's a really critical distinction because well there're two things you know one is that the tech companies count on us being ignorant, right? They, they take right. advantage of the fact that like, everyone's like, oh, it's too complicated to understand. You know, and you saw this actually with uh, Sundar Pichai, who the, the CEO of Google, who's gonna be testifying today uh, in, in a Senate Judiciary hearing, I think it was last year with Josh Hawley. He, yeah. Josh Hawley was like, okay, but do you still keep tracking people when they turn off the location services on their phone? Right. And Pichai, he kept pressing and pressing him. And finally, Pichai was like, well, it's probably too complicated to understand. You know, that's the answer to Congress, right? And so they rely on our ignorance. They take advantage of it. But I, so I think that's an issue that I think this oversight is really helpful with, right? Because sometimes right. oversight compels some responsibility into these platforms to be more transparent. Right. But I think the second issue is an important one that you raised about the culture, you know, because I think a lot of conservatives say, well, it's just a private business angle and government has no role in the private business. That's a debatable point, right? That's a, and usually it's right. But I think where Congress does have a role is to say, well, but these companies are changing our culture. There's a philosophical debate about how we want to live and if, you know, what these companies are doing to us as a society. That's completely fair territory, I think, for Congress. You know, I don't know necessarily, I don't have an outcome that I want them to take, but I think it's correct for us to be asking that question. You know, James Lindsay, who's a mathematician, really, he recently phrased it as a mediated empiricism. Mm-hmm. right that's how we we interact with the world now these companies filter our information they give us a little bit of you know a little bit of what they want us to see but not the full story because they make money from our viral outrage you know and they want to algorithmically amplify our division and our outrage and our you know you know hatefulness and that's how they make money so they have an incentive to do that and that's now again to your point how we interact with the world, how we interact with each other. And so I think it's totally appropriate for conservatives who care about the civil society, who want strong, you know, civil society bonds and strong families. It's totally appropriate for us to be asking these questions, you know, uh, you know, in debate and in discussion, even on Capitol Hill.
0: By the way, uh, so that, that brings up an issue because you're right that not much different in fact than the media of the seventies and eighties when I was young growing up that uh, that uh, the, the, the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and then CNN in its early stages when cable started to, to proliferate in the 80s, um, they were trying to stir things up. They were trying to stir the, but But what was interesting about those companies, even though Ted Turner began to break this in media a little bit, is they were anchored in the United States. As far left as Walter Cronkite could be and in, in his day, when he was really the trusted voice for everybody, uh, he still was anchored in an Americanism. You know, he, he expressed tears when Kennedy was assassinated. He expressed a passionate emotion about the Apollo mission. We see, if anyone looks at the history of these videos, you see that. He was anchored in an Americanism in many ways, and, in, and, and to varying degrees, uh, admittedly, uh, these companies are not anchored in Americanism mm-hmm. right now, and in fact, the the biggest issue for them, uh, as they as as uh, appropriate business owners who are, are, and or directors who are supposed to be making a profit and so forth, they're they're looking at China with a billion people and looking at us with 330 million and saying, "Well, where's our market?" So that lack of anchor really plays uh, a big role in this debate, does it not?
1: I think it really does because it goes to the point, you know, that you're making before where it's like, you know, when, when we're governed, when these companies are governed by certain norms, right? Like they have a responsibility to America to, to posit our views fairly, to give everyone a a fair shot, you know, when they're not trying to fundamentally change the nature of our society, that's one thing, but that's not what we're seeing. They don't even consider themselves necessarily American companies. They consider themselves citizens of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, they want to make money. They're not doing this as a public service. They're doing it to, to make as much money as possible. And that means going to China because that's yeah. where, to your point, all the people are. And yeah. so what they're willing to do to access that market and what it means for us, I think, is, is a very key issue for the next five or 10 years because all of them want access to that market.
0: Google and by the was- way, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, Google
1: was building a censorship regime on behalf of the Chinese government.
0: Yeah, and in fact, it, 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 interestingly, on the opposite side of it, it was their employees who uh, who broke the <laughs> story. Uh, with the, their employees hate us conservatives, but they also got concerned about that. It was so bad. And and by the way, it's it's not just a cultural uh, connection that they're trying to make. You made I I brought out a quote of what you wrote in one of your articles. But he says you you mentioned that google won't work with the u.s defense department but it will work with the chinese military i mean this is this is really absurd and crazy because that's exactly what they were doing in building that uh that that uh that that search engine cap- that firewall the great firewall they're calling it okay. um i think i'm going to tell you my evaluation i want you to continue to talk about this china thing and what's really at stake but my concern my greatest concern with all these companies is most with Google. They seem the least anchored of any of these companies. And they're, they're, they, every one of them are to a certain degree. But, but Amazon isn't even as, as anchored to China because Alibaba is their competitor there and dominates the whole thing. So, so even though they probably get some market in China to a certain degree, and they're, they're playing that game, their server well, services.
1: You should know that the majority of sellers on Amazon are Chinese companies.
0: Yeah. Well, and by the way, the majority of sellers on Facebook are. So I've been buying some tech recently as I'm upgrading certain things related to this podcast. And I start to order it, and I find out the thing's coming right out of China. I mean, it's amazing. All, every bit of tech you see advertised on Facebook, it all, maybe it has to be in the 90% range or coming from China. And and so my question is, in the uh, whole 5G debate where um, Huawei – you know is is seemingly uh tracking everything around the world if wherever they're in in you know, putting their technology in play i don't want to be connected to that but yes a lot of that is coming from china because of the low manufacturing costs so um but google seems the worst problem to me and and i i'm and that is significant because Facebook has huge search engine capability. I mean, people don't know Facebook is a huge search engine. So, in yeah. in many ways, so uh, they, we say ninety-two percent of search comes through Google. Well, not ninety-two percent of all search, because Facebook activity is maybe equally as big in terms of actual traffic. So, but but Google's everything seems to anchor in Google, and they seem the most bought in to the Chinese way of thinking. And, and I mean that seriously when I say the Chinese way of thinking, because they believe that quote unquote ordered societies are important. They want order for their business to go well. I mean, am I missing this? Am I overstating the case?
1: No, you know, I, I think it's, it's right. And I think, you know, it was that there was a discovery, I think at the end of last year that Google Apple and Amazon were helping the Chinese government. They were like facilitating the, the sale of, of, um tech, I guess, that the yeah. Chinese government was using to suppress its Uyghur minorities. I mean right. they don't have necessarily a value system that they're applying to China. Uh, the country that arguably needs one, and so yeah. I think the the biggest question for these companies in the next five years is really going to be: Are you an American company, or are you a Chinese company? Because
0: well, Mark Zuckerberg understands that because in his opening statement today, he's making that an, an emphatic statement: We are fundamentally an American company. And you know, I, I think if any of them, he maybe has more feelings in that way, but I I don't see I don't see an anchor to it. Um, well, I think. So, uh, yeah. It's
1: the thing with, with Facebook. I think Zuckerberg has been probably the most outspoken to say we're not going to China. Like we're not doing it. But what I think is, is frustrating for a lot of conservatives is like he says, well, if we're fundamentally an American company, the free speech board that they've set up has a bunch of people from around the world to decide what Americans' free speech is constituting. Right. All these companies right. like don't have an American tradition of free speech. So like there's a balancing act. I think he's probably more invested in it than all the other companies, and I salute him for that, but it's a it's a very difficult job.
0: He's getting huge internal resistance to that, so so now I know that our time is getting closer. I want to hit another issue here because uh, one of the aspects uh, that is very concerning that particularly Google is involved with, and I think some of the others are as well because uh, Apple's getting into this space big is also, but you you mentioned in one of your articles that uh, you've got millions and millions. Of uh, health records that are being transferred to Google without people's knowledge, and I mean, I, as I read the HIPAA law, I, I see that as a violation. How is that happening? What's the impact potentially for individuals?
1: Yeah, this story is wild to me, and it's crazy that more lawmakers, I think, aren't concerned with it because technically it is legal, and this is this is crazy to me, right? The way HIPAA is written and the way this happened is different healthcare chains partnered with Google and they put Google under HIPAA as a business associate and under the law these hospital companies can transfer your full medical record which includes your date of birth you know every lab test you've ever had the results your address your name they can transfer all of that to Google without your knowledge or consent and that is legal and you know i don't HIPAA i don't think envision Google a, you know Google doing this or being being a recipient of this but Google won't say what they're doing with it. Like, I can come up with a couple of reasons, you know, maybe that they're helping the hospitals, like, be more efficient with their medical records. But I have a problem with Google having my medical records because Google wants to make money off of them at the end of the day. And so that, it, I have no assurances that my privacy is going to be protected because if there was a privacy breach, Google's not liable. The hospital chain is. And so I think yeah. we've created this weird legal landscape where. I don't own my own medical record. Like under the law, I, I cannot own my own medical record. I can't, you know, have access to my grandmother if I'm not on a certain list, if she's in the hospital. But Google can have my entire record. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre way of living.
0: It is. And, uh, and, and again, Apple's in this space too. I mean, they're, they're making a huge drive through the Apple Watch. And through other technologies, you know, every, everybody that has an iPhone has the health app on there. And by the way, it's fantastic technology. I think for the individual, it's a real big step forward. And Apple's going to do even better with this, you know, if the Fitbit kind of gets, gets the, uh, the press on this. But Apple's going to dominate this space moving forward. It's a real issue there. I, I think they seem to have a better attitude towards individual privacy than Google does. Am I missing anything here?
1: No, I think Apple's tried to like become the privacy, you know, company. Um, so they've definitely done more, I think, and or more specifics in that direction. Google gives privacy a lot of lip service, but when you actually dig down into it, they're not protecting your privacy because if they did, they wouldn't make as much money. And so, <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah. they have no problem violating your privacy and telling you otherwise. You know, yeah. I would also add that in addition to your medical records, Google bought the the healthcare data of 28 million Fitbit users. Yeah. So they also have that health data, you know, they and do. Google, Google is upfront with it. They, they want to change the way we interact with the world. They say this. And so it's not yeah. a secret.
0: Well, they're also working in the area of uh, the internet of things where, yeah. you know, cause they bought Nest and, and all these devices that a lot of people are putting in their homes to, uh, for lighting, for various things, various ways to control their refrigerator even. And they're, they're deep into that technology under the guise of doing stuff about climate change and so forth. That could be a real problem too.
1: Yeah. Well, and remember, like all of these data sets are co-mingled, right? Yeah. It's not just the healthcare data is separate from the other data. This was the issue with DoubleClick. When they bought DoubleClick, they said, no, we will never co the data of web users with our platform data users. And then they did, right? And the FTC just didn't do anything about it. But right. what it does is they're trying to create a profile, a digital profile on every individual that uses any of their various services so they can target you better with ads. But the, the byproduct of that is you have no privacy. Yeah. <laughs> you are a commodity to Google.
0: No, yeah. And and uh, th- this really comes out in my friend Peter Schweitzer's production of The Creepy Line yeah. where that really talks a lot about this. And Robert Epstein, who... The uh, the Democrat Hillary Clinton supporting uh, psychologist who who understands a lot of what's happening with this. Let, let's uh, but, but before we uh, close this out, um, what three things would you say are the most important takeaways that Americans should have when they consider what's going on with this? Again, as you and I have already established here, it's way beyond the political debate far, far beyond that. What are the three things that I think that you think people need to know as, they, uh, as they're trying to navigate this, as they navigate the hearing today and the fallout from it? What do they need to know?
1: So I would say the first thing is something that Americans already intuitively grasp. There was a Pew poll that came out six, six or seven days ago that showed 72% of Americans think that big tech has too much power right? So I think they intuitively grasp the problem. But I think for conservatives in particular, who I think get caught up in the sort of, well, private businesses, we shouldn't interact in the market. This is fundamentally an issue of liberty, in the sense that, you know, I don't want to bend the knee to anybody. I don't want to bend the knee to a tyrannical government. But I also don't want to bend the knee to a tyrannical corporation, or tyrannical sovereign, other sovereign country. And so I think this is where we are now in the territory of it. Like, why should I have to bend the knee to Google just because it's a private company? It's, it's grown so large and it dominates so much of my life that I think that's actually worth talking about. And sort of the third angle of that is that you actually can't opt out of these companies anymore. And I think our conversation has made that clear, but I think it's a, it's a 10 years ago, I think people are still stuck 10 years ago where you could, right? You just didn't use Facebook, right. you didn't use Google. But now if you use your phone for anything, Every app is using Google Maps. Google tracks you across the website, you know, across the web because of double click. Facebook was busted reading text messages on the Android phone. These companies are pervasive, and we, our public policy simply doesn't account for it. And so that's why this conversation is so important. I think at the policy level,
0: um, uh, will we ever escape it? Will we ever escape? Is is it realistic in your mind? Are we ever really going to to solve this issue for individual privacy? And and lastly. Um, are, will there be countries anymore? Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I think, you know, the companies do not want us to solve this privacy question because the reason that they have all this access is because we have no federal privacy law or, you know, we have some state laws that are, some are better than others, but we really have no updated privacy law that reflects the world we're living in. Mm-hmm. And that is very monetarily beneficial for tech. And so the, I think the debate over the next 10 years is going to be that clash you know, will we set up a privacy regime that accounts, allows innovation, but accounts for our individual liberties, you know, or will we let these companies dominate it? Because we're not going backwards. We're not. We're not going back to a pre-Facebook age. We're not going right. back to a pre-Google age. And we probably shouldn't, right? These companies have yeah. given us a lot of benefits. Sure. But our policy has to reflect the, the risks and rewards that individuals have when interacting with these. Google shouldn't be able to dictate what my privacy is any more than Facebook, you know, should. We should be able to decide that.
0: Right So that's exactly.
1: the I think for for libertarians in particular, I think that's the the question for the next ten years.
0: Well, one thing we didn't cover here on this podcast as we close it out is that debate over liberty and the and the conservative libertarian you know headbutting that's <laughs> taking place right now. And hopefully we can come back and do that. but uh, Rachel bavard, I, I really appreciate you taking some time today. You're about to run into these hearings. I'm going to too. Yeah. And I'm going to add some stuff around this podcast uh, related to that so people can get a full view of really what's going on. I'll add my comments on that. But I want to appreciate, I appreciate, I mean, everything that you're doing on this and how you're tracking it because it's very critical. You're one of the leaders in Washington, D.C. from a policy perspective on this. And I appreciate you, Rachel, for taking some time today.
1: Thank you very much. It was a blast.
0: Good. Well, we'll do it again soon. And thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www dot politics isn't nice.com join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on itunes spotify stitcher or iheart radio thanks for joining the show today we'll be back soon